Maximum Health with your host, Dr. Ken Gray. Dr. Gray obtained his master's in both acupuncture and oriental medicine from the Atlantic Institute of Oriental Medicine. Dr. Gray enjoys both being a physician as well as being an educator. His unique approach to holistic healing has taken him abroad to lecture in Germany and treat sports professionals in Hawaii and France. He is co-author of several books on food therapy. His office is in Jupiter, Florida, where he has practiced for over a decade and where he resides. Now it's time for Maximum Health with Dr. Ken Gray. Welcome back, everyone. This is Maximum Health Radio, quality living with yours truly, Dr. Ken Gray. Thank you for joining us. And as always, we have special guests with us. And uh, today, one of our guests is Professor Lisa Beal, Professor of Ocean Sciences, University of Miami, uh, Rosenthal uh, School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And the, you know, the work, some of your work that brought us together is just really the state of our oceans and um, the health of our planet and how we are doing as stewards. And I know that uh, prior conversations that we've had is means that we could, we basically come to the conclusion that we can do better. But you've been doing so much with uh, the technology provided to you and all of your research to to see what our oceans are doing and, and how things are changing in regards to climate change and uh, rising levels and so forth and so on. So tell us a little bit about what you do and how you do it, please, Miss Lisa, Professor Lisa. All right, it's my pleasure. Um, so I study ocean currents, so or the motion of the ocean, if you like, um, and I think about how um, that circulation may be changing and how that affects our climate, um, both regionally and globally, um, and you know even how it may feed back on on climate change um, to accelerate or decelerate. Um, the changes that we're seeing. And um, I'm particularly well known for studying uh, a current system um, known as the Agulla. It's, it's a current that flows um, off the east coast of southern Africa. And it's a fascinating area that I uh, fell passionately in love with as a, as a graduate student many years ago. Uh, the Agulla's current is one of the, the strongest currents in the world ocean. And like other western boundary currents, um, such as the Gulf Stream, it carries a lot of heat away from the equator and towards the poles. And in that respect, then, it's an important component of our climate because you can imagine that it, uh, it can carry um, heat and moisture and make more northern latitudes um, warmer and wetter in terms of their climate. So many of us might be familiar with that concept in terms of the Gulf Stream and how it creates a warmer, wetter climate um, for northern Europe, for example, and particularly um, for where I grew up in the United Kingdom. The, you know, I think it's just such a foreign concept for most people still today that the ocean has anything to do with our climate. Um, you know, I think people just think it's just some mysterious occurrence of how our temperatures change and how we maintain some sort of balance or homeostasis on a global level. And what I think your research is bringing um, to the forefront is, is that the ocean is almost, uh, I mean, just is the majority of what is the uh, cause of climate and how it works on this planet. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, you're exactly right. A lot of people 
they don't think about the ocean um, when they think about climate and climate change. And yet, um, with anthropogenic climate change, with all the excess heat that we are trapping uh, um, at the surface of our planet, over 90% of that excess heat has gone into the ocean, is now stored in the ocean. And so, you know, when I, when I teach my students about climate change, uh, you know, I like to say to them that you can think of the ocean as like the flywheel of climate. It's kind of like, um, you know, the atmosphere mixes really quickly and uh, the weather systems pass through really quickly. Um, but the ocean, you know, sits there with time scales of, of, of uh, tens and, and up to a thousand years. And it stores all this heat. And really the question um, that we ask as oceanographers is, where is this heat going? Uh, when is it going to, uh, you know, when is it going to fuel the atmosphere and where? Um, you know, how is it going to be delivered? Um, you know, uh, and, and, and overall, um, you know, affect our climate system in the future. So it really sets the timing um, of a lot of our climate um, on timescales from what we call uh, sub-seasonal to seasonal, um, so like, you know, weekly, monthly, up to seasonal, and all the timescales beyond that, interannual, um, like some people may have heard of the El Nino Southern Oscillation, and the El Nino La Nina phenomena that affects our climate so profoundly on interannual timescales from year to year, and all the way up to decadal and, and beyond, you know, the ocean is, is an essential ingredient in understanding those kind of climate changes. The when you when you look at the ocean, what it's doing, um, do you ever get involved with seeing the change of the different species and how it's reacting um, to the climate change? Um, you know, not on a personal basis. That's not my research. But of course, we think about um, how changes uh, in ocean circulation in the currents may affect marine life. Um, and I can give an example of that. So. Uh, with my research um, into the Agolas current, for example, we were trying to see if we could understand whether the current was um, intensifying over time, whether it was getting stronger um, with climate change and with the increasing intensity of the winds, for example, um, or whether maybe instead it was becoming more turbulent. So that extra energy in the climate system was feeding into rather than kind of feeding into um, uh, the kind of straightforward kind of um, uh, mean flow of the, of the current, but it was rather feeding into the eddies and the turbulent nature. So an eddy, we talk about eddies a lot in oceanography. They are kind of, um, you can think of them as, as water going around and around, you know, circulating um, and on small, small scales. And if there's more of, more of that kind of eddying going on, it's like... Um, stirring and, and, and so on in those boundary currents, then what you're, what you're doing is you're changing the way that those boundary currents affect the coastal ocean. And of course, the, the coastal ocean tends to be where um, marine life thrives. Um, there's, you know, upwelling in the coastal ocean. That means that water is brought up from depth that, has, that is full of nutrients and can feed a lot of marine life. Um, and so if these currents um, are intensifying, they tend to separate more. And these are, these are complex um, ideas. So, you know, by all means, 
ask me more questions about it if I'm not clear, but um, if they intensify, then the front tends to get stronger. The, the separation between the open ocean and the coastal ocean um, uh, becomes stronger, and, and those, those, those waters will, 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 it's if they become more remote from one another. Um, and so in that case, you could retain, say, fish larvae um, and pollutants or, you know, uh, anything within coastal waters. They would be less likely to, um, to um, permeate out into the open ocean. Right. They'd be, become more trapped to the coast. But if you get the currents becoming more turbulent, then you have the opposite effect, where now you could more easily transport those fish larvae offshore. And that could affect... Um, you know, uh, the retention and recruitment of those larvae um, and therefore affect, you know, um, the um, the life patterns of those right. fish and the success of the fish stock. Yeah. You know, so so obviously these concepts are very important and, and they're essential to our survival on this planet. I mean, even down to the air we breathe and those are all um, scientifically can be complex. But what I try to do is I... Um, bring these subjects into a way that they hit home. And I also invited uh, Mr. Grant Guyland uh, here in the studio with us today. Um, and he is uh, owner of Cotton Capers, which is probably, if not the largest, one of the largest seafood purveyors um, in South Florida, down even into the Bahamas. Yes, we do about half the east coast of Florida every day. And then we do some parts of the Bahamas. And then we also uh, go into various parts of the Caribbean as well. So thank you for joining us. Of I course, thanks for having me. I know your family has been doing this for many years. Yes, uh, I think it's 35 or 36 years now. Right, so family-based, mm -hmm. very involved in community and um, very. helpful in situations where, you know, uh, I'm sure people have needed your help after hurricanes and <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, all the things that have affect us here on the coast. Um, now, the a lot of which... Um, our Professor Beale is talking about, have you seen changes with in regards to certain seafood? I know we've spoken to some things, you know, about in this regard, but mm -hmm. give us a, sort of a synopsis of what you've seen over the, uh, the last few years and how that's changed seafood and um, what you've been able to provide versus... It's really interesting because there's, there's so many bits and pieces that kind of all come together and make the puzzle. It's um, kind of like when, when you were talking... Uh, professor was talking about the um, the hurricanes mm -hmm. when you have the warming waters and basically think of a hurricane as like a heat extractor mm -hmm. uh, and as they get bigger and stronger and they pull more heat out of the water the storms become more intense and we see things like what happened in the Keys uh, during Hurricane Irma where the storm hit with so much ferocity that it was actually taking parts of the seafloor up in the wow. shallower waters in Florida Bay, and we had uh, grass, seagrass islands floating by offshore here for a week or two weeks after, hmm. which made for really good fishing here. But a lot of that, for instance, is like where the Florida lobsters, uh, well, not necessarily maybe lay their eggs, but definitely in the estuaries where you see a lot of the smaller lobsters <coughs> where, where they live. So, mm. So it kind Things, of affected the lobster. It definitely affected yeah. the production there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, stone crabs as well. Mm -hmm. it, it was the first year after Irma was definitely off. But some of that's hard to say, too, how many boats and traps and other things mm -hmm. that helped the production were lost. Um, a few years we've been seeing some changes in Maine lobster. 
uh, I know a year or two ago, it seemed that all the lobsters were moving further north. The boats were ha always having to go further and further north. Because mm -hmm. um, for the cooler waters. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. The water temperatures just weren't weren't quite what they usually are. Mm -hmm. um, we're also getting just further into the year with warmer water than mm -hmm. we usually do. The cold fronts the last few years weren't quite what they've been in Florida. Uh, so this sounds like more of a drastic change than over the last 35. So it was like maybe 30... Two years was something. The last three you've seen. Uh, the last three was yeah. yeah. I was like, hey, something's something's a little bit different here. Okay. Okay. Um, but you know, then this year we've had kind of almost it felt like a correction in it. Mm. You know, we've uh, a lot of the fisheries came back really strong this year that hadn't been in a couple. So it's I guess if you look at it in the longer term, it's easier to see. Okay, well, what, is this just a trend in a right. fishery, right? Or is it in you know, is it coinciding with water temperatures as, you know, these species are moving further north mm -hmm. and things like that? And even like, are we seeing species moving into our area from further south that we don't normally have, mm -hmm. which I haven't seen a whole lot of, but... What about quantity? It depends on the fishery. Mm -hmm. um, the Florida lobsters this year were very, very prevalent. Right. Um, the weather was probably the limiting factor mm -hmm. to harvest this year because we've had such a windy, uncharacteristically windy winter. Yeah. Um, what about your popular northern fish, say your cod and such like that? That one is fairly stable. Mm -hmm. It's managed better now than it has been. Um, a lot of the northern species were fished too hard for too long, and a lot of that has to do... Like tuna. Uh, or is that somewhat tuna. Some tuna. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the northeast, I know that the the yellowfin tuna is in good standing, mm -hmm. and that's why our company, in particular, we do not deal with like bluefin, mm -hmm. for instance, mm -hmm. just because of the the stock could be in better shape than it is. Mm -hmm. But yellowfin, it's in good standing, and there's not it's not an overpressured fishery. Um, when you have species like the bluefin, where in other parts of the world they're fished so heavily and with pretty much a disregard to regulation, that gets kind of tricky, mm -hmm. um, especially when we're not totally sure about their migration patterns. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of unanswered research on that. When you when we talk about trends, Professor Beal, are you seeing that there is a trend in the long term? I mean, how long have you been doing this research and, and what are you seeing in the short term versus you know, any information uh, based on long-term changes in the ocean? Well, of course, the long-term changes are the, the hardest to uh, to find, right? Because we need long-term data. Right. Um, and, and your program so is, how, how old is your program? Um, so in the Agolas Current, we, um, we were able to um, put our moorings down for three years, which is a very short amount of time, right? But what we did was we um, leveraged ongoing satellite data. Um, so there are a constellation of satellites that measure, um, you know, various things in our climate system, like sea surface temperature, um, sea surface height, which is particularly useful because that's a dynamic quantity. So a lot of people probably not aware that. Um, the, the surface of the ocean is not flat, right? It has waves, which is something that we that we notice, um, you know, very much if we go out on the ocean. But on larger scales, that probably we, they, that we wouldn't notice, 
um, is that the surface of the ocean is actually like uh, domed because of the large-scale gyres. So it's just like the high and low pressure systems that we get in the atmosphere that drive the winds. Um, and um, uh, in the ocean, then, we can use sea surface heights and satellite data to tell us something about the way the ocean is moving, to tell us something about the currents. And so what we did in my program was um, we went out for these, you know, uh, these three cruises um, to put out the moorings um, um, over those three years. And then we were able to um, put our instruments along a satellite ground track and in that case leverage this sea surface height data to um, what we call build a proxy. Um, so basically look at how um, the ocean current was related to what's going on at the surface um, and um, and uh, create um, a relationship to that that we could then project uh, uh, forward and backwards in time using the satellite data. So uh, using that technique, we've managed to leverage those three years of data into 25 years um, of time series. And so what are you coming up with in terms of where we are? Well, so that's that's what's uh, really interesting, right? So the, so the climate models are telling us that the ocean uh, and the atmosphere um, are the, the amount of energy in the system is increasing, right? Mm. This is this is uh, this is something that's extremely robust, um, uh, and um, the climate models were were suggesting that currents in that case were intensifying. So a current like the Gulf Stream would be getting stronger and that idea of this kind of frontal separation that I was talking about earlier would also be getting stronger um, but what I found in the Agolis system um, th this wasn't the case that over 25 years at least um, we didn't see any uh, strengthening of the current and what we saw instead was this turbulent nature of the current increasing so this idea so this kind of concept goes along with ideas of as, for example, hurricanes um, um, that were being spoken about earlier in terms of their effects on, uh, for example, on the on the stone crab population. Um, so hurricanes is um, a, a storm system. It's um, an extreme event, right? Uh, it's not something that happens. It's not a typical event like, say, the westerly winds or, you know, our synoptic wind systems. You know, the winds always... Um, uh, tending to blow in one direction at certain latitudes, um, and so in the ocean we can think of the you know these eddies as being similar type of storm systems, and um, it's it's those that seem to be intensifying, mm. um, if that makes sense. So we're getting more extreme events also in the ocean as well as the atmosphere, and this really has very different um, you know very different results in a very different projection for how we think the ocean may feed back uh, on climate because um, for example if you have more turbulence then that heat transport that these currents um, are, are, are able to carry that heat from away from the equator towards the poles um, is going to reduce because now the heat the motion is becoming more turbulent and the heat is going to be mixed more up onto the shelf mm. um, and out into the open ocean across those current systems. And so that represents a very different effect, particularly on the coastal ocean, uh, potentially in the long term. You know, I was talking to someone, and I don't know if you would uh, agree with this, uh, with, with cotton capers and what you provide. I know Apalachicola 
oysters, for instance, mm-hmm. they're northern Florida. Right. Right. Panhandle. Uh, Panhandle. Those oyster, I guess you would call them fisheries or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that that d- town definitely depends yeah. on. Or diminished on quite them. a bit, I heard. Yes. Now, I talk, I do talk to people there occasionally, yeah. and um, I don't have all the correct answers, I mm-hmm. would say, for that. Right. But from what I'm understanding, it, it was kind of a perfect storm of conditions. Right. Right. between a uh, hurricane mm-hmm. that came and buried a lot of their oyster beds mm-hmm. and which has happened before you know it's happened in Louisiana before mm-hmm. after hurricanes it's not totally uncommon right. but from my understanding one of the bigger issues was a damming project in Georgia inland Mm-hmm. for uh, hydroelectric that changed the outflow of fresh water. And a lot of the oyster beds really thrive. It kind of gives them their, their terroir, if you will. Uh, when the fresh water comes out, it gives a very specific flavor. It gives mm-hmm. the water a certain salinity. Right. And it really creates that nice condition for the oysters. And it's my understanding that that project had a much more profound effect right, on, yeah. on their estuaries than anyone had expected. Right. So there's all these, and obviously we've had all sorts of issues with red tide. And and that does not yeah, help either. That doesn't help no. either. Um, and some people tie that to climate change and Oh, sure. So yeah, and uh, nutrient outflow and yeah. you name it. Um, if you were to look ahead uh, based upon your, you know, obviously your, your younger part of your mm-hmm. generation, <laughs> sure. manning the helm now, um, would you have particular recommendations or suggestions or concerns even of where we stand with our oceans from your point of view? From my point of view right now, I would probably say one of the one of the bigger things that I would really like to see fixed and this this is containing I'll say more domestic let's just because globally I mean there's so many issues mm-hmm. with regulation and, and you name it but if we're looking at it from a purely domestic standpoint, because that's what we can control best is the fisheries that we have along our coast that we can control. I would say it is a nutrient runoff. That's one of the biggest things like the dead zone that's outside of the mouth of the Mississippi River to the issues that we have with the cyanotoxins coming out of uh, St. Lucie Inlet as well as on the west coast of Florida. Uh, I think that as a whole that that's going to affect on so many different levels our estuaries and it's kind of like the butterfly effect right basically and, and that's really what we're talking about here is that on a larger scale on a global scale our our climate and our oceans are being affected which is being confirmed by professor Beale but on a smaller scale where we were really hits home those same um, those same same habits that we've developed those same uh, neglect for how we produce things and our pollu- love of our fertilizers our love our fertilizers and yeah. produce uh, uh, all sorts of pollutants uh, is also affecting and it's all a connected we're, we're just this connected organism that's mm-hmm. obviously going in a downward spiral um, so 
Yeah. Any suggestions, Professor Bill? I know we've spoken about this before because it's 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 disheartening sometimes when you look at how fast this is affecting us um, overall, our food chain, our our oceans, our local, just our ability to make a living. Obviously, people have lost that ability in many areas. Um, and and what what is when when you think about this, what are some solutions you may think of? Because obviously, with your research, you're thinking in terms of you know not only informing but maybe that people will then uh, change the way they do certain things. So, Professor Beale, what are some of your thoughts in that regard? Following on uh, from what was said about the nutrient runoff problem, I mean, you know, it's also a climate change problem, um, the way we eat, right? Um, And there's a lot of evidence that substantial uh, quantity of our fossil fuel uh, emissions are related to the food industry and to uh, creation of fertilizers as well. Mm. And so, you know, I, I always encourage my students try to eat local mm-hmm. and eat organic. You know, if you eat organic, you're not putting those fertilizers on the soil. You're not putting the pesticides on the soil, uh, which is flowing, you know, in ever greater quantities, you know, into the ocean mm. and directly affecting our fisheries. I think in a more global sense, uh, which tends to be, you know, the platform that I think about, um, even in terms of we have a global ocean observing system, um, which probably a lot of people aren't aware of, which is just really in its nascent phase and, and desperately needs, um, you know, uh, more uh, support and um, and uh, and tools um, to really get at forecasts like, you know, what's the monsoon rainfall going to be like next year for India? You know, um, if we bring it closer to home, uh, you know. What can we expect of next year's fire season? Mm. Right, the, wow. this kind of this kind of predictability, this seasonal predictability, this is something that, um, as oceanographers and climate scientists, um, you know, we think a lot about and are really trying to now create the tools to give us that kind of predictability. You know, ten-day forecasts can be done with atmospheric data, but anything beyond that, if you want to know anything about next season. If you want to know how warm, uh, you know, the subtropical Atlantic is going to be next season and whether that's going to create again, for example, as we had last year in 2019 here in Miami, we had um, for six months in a row record sea level, um, sea levels, uh, well over a foot of those predicted um, by, for instance, you know, the NOAA tidal predictions. And why was that? Because we have this, this warming in the ocean that we don't really fully understand related to um, year-to-year, um, you know, and seasonal changes. So these kind of things are, I think, really important for us to understand better. We're really at the early stages of, of trying to do that. Um, and we, you know, desperately need more measurements uh, in the ocean and more understanding of the ocean's role. Um, on those timescales if, if we're to manage that. So those that's the kind of issues that I think about in terms of next steps for the science community in terms of, I guess, giving society more information right. um, about what's coming um, and how they can prepare. Well, there are huge questions, and there are some things that we can do about it individually, and, and those suggestions have been made, and we thank you both. Uh, Professor Lisa Beale from University of Miami um, and Mr. Grant Guyland from Cotton Capers, you've been very helpful bringing some things to light and then hopefully inspiring us to know that we can do better, and uh, hopefully we will. Uh, This has been another Maximum Health Quality Living. If you've missed any portion of this show, Apple, iTunes, Podcasts, as well as the Public Radio Exchange. See you next time. 
it isn't broken Tried to keep it open But I couldn't 